Jeremy. Hi, Raphael. Hey. Uh, this week we really didn't do any prep, pre-conversation. This is really. Well, we've had we've been on an extended leave, so we've it's had been like, a while, huh? Like a month to prepare for this. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we both been traveling, and I had COVID, which was like nothing to laugh at. That's for sure. No, what was it like? Um, you told me a little bit, but well, it, you know, it's kind. Of, at first, you're like, ah, oh, it's only going to be like, it's not that bad. It's just like a little you cold. Had, you had 45 shots or something. Yeah, I had like 45, 50 shots. Yeah, <laughs> masked up. You know, actually, like what happened is I went out to like a dinner and like a sports game, so I was kind of like. I'm, you know, I'm fully vaxxed. It's like, man, you know, the mandates are over. It's time to go out. And I think like a lot of people, you know, it's like you have that pent up social energy. And then like two days later, I was sick. So yeah, the were, problem. Were you sick is, also because you were, your immunity was low because you were tired or sort of exhausted? Did it have anything to do with it? No, no, no. I was in, I was in like great spirits actually. Okay. Um, so the, here's the, like the thing though, is like, I guess I'm not a young man, but like it, it took a long time to recover, like fully two weeks, I'd say. Like, yeah. And, and like that one week of for like my, just laying yeah. down. My program, my regular programmer, Rainier, he was about to get the booster shot and he had the appointment a day later, but the day before he got sick and it took him 10 yeah. days or something. Yeah. Well, Kristen had the booster, and obviously, I gave her um, COVID as well in our home. It, it like it, her case was a little better, <clears throat> but I have heard from all sorts of people. Like a mild case is nothing to laugh at because you can get these yeah. like, like I, I talked. I went out for dinner with a bunch of you know managers who had you know you know they live and die by their ability to like comprehend you know documentation and spreadsheets and things like that, and uh, they both. <clears throat> or several of them had had brain fog. Oh, okay. And were like questioning whether their careers were over. Um, for how long? They had eventually kind of recovered. It took like for months, like for like a month oh, or two wow. months. Um, and I was reading that like even if you get a mild case, um, you can, you know, you can get the brain fog thing, and like your brain shrinks by two percent. <laughs> it's like it's really scary stuff. Like. Mm. Long COVID doesn't necessarily have anything to do yeah. with how severe your initial case of COVID is. Even a mild case can be can be long COVID. Yeah. So I was just terrified over the last few weeks, actually. Yeah, I had the Excellent. the opposite experience where I visited the Netherlands and my sister and her partner had just had it. My parents had visited them, hmm. and then my mom got it. My stepdad had it. My other sister had it. Her husband had it. Everybody. And I was nervous. I didn't have symptoms, but if I tested positive, I would have to stay for three more weeks or something. Yeah. But I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, uh, what do you? We say what do you that do? in Dutch, we you go through the eye of the needle. But uh, yeah. <clears throat> but I think like um, even once this is all over, like the long term impacts are going to be, um, or if this ever ends. But even if it were to end, there's like these kind of like latent. Uh, issues out there anyway so that yeah. was not fun and <laughs> Did, how long were you really bedridden like a like a full seven well i'd say five full days and then i had a weekend kind of of like feeling good enough to like i mean i was on the couch and i didn't hang out in bed but um, did you still sort of work and answer emails i tried and i had to end up canceling a bunch of stuff i canceled two workshops that i had scheduled that week and okay yeah yeah, but so I did go to work last week. It's I imagine you're a person 
who doesn't get sick that often and when you do that you still try to be useful and you keep feeling bad that you're not able to re- I tried and then you don't I want was to like rest sweating on a call and I was like no I can't I can't, I can't yeah, do yeah. this is not good uh, and everyone was really supportive actually so um yeah. You, know, you know, you know, you're, you know, when you're surrounded by uh, folks who love you, uh, when when you get sick, and they're all like, "Of course, take care." Yeah, um, it would have been weird if people were like, "Come on, Jeremy, you got to be kidding me." I, ex- you know, there's no peer pressure though. I think everyone who's had COVID, there's like a built-in sympathy that's greater than normal. Um, than the flu. Yeah, than the flu. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there was always this culture of, uh, oh, I'm super sick, but I'm going to take all these chemicals so it can still go to work and yeah, those things are over that. yeah that's over yeah. yeah anyway but how are you like you went uh you traveled you did like a new nft show with feral file you did a workshop uh in the yeah. u.s somewhere i mean you're already in the u.s but in texas or something yeah i did a a bunch of nft stuff in a row and there's still more coming so i i basically last year i worked a lot of the pieces on foundation that were unique and now it's all these series and they all sort of finished at the same time so mm. i made one that was completely independent of any platform and then i made one on feral file and then doing another art block soon and then i'm doing what something. does that mean independent of any platform i think we talked about that last time but like well like uh, i worked with a blockchain programmer and then it's just on newrafael.com we we did a drop and you mint it on my website, not on any oh. platform. So and did you find that like people knew about it and were able to did yeah. you get as many sales? Yeah, yeah. It, it sold out in one day. So it, it, that, that gave me a very powerful feeling like, oh, this is really independent. I'm just, it's just the blockchain and the artist and nothing. In That's between. the thing I'm most excited about, the idea of the artist being completely in control. I like yeah. that. Yeah, but still you're dependent on social media. I, I don't know if, if you can really do it just with a blog. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, social media. Mm. Mm. Indeed, they still <laughs> play a role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though yeah. I don't, lo- I haven't logged into Facebook in like several months. Um, that's not really where the deals go down, though, right? It's no, like, I think it's mostly Twitter, Twitter and but Instagram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, it's it's. I mean, that's the promise of the, the early web, and now the promise of the blockchain. Like, uh, just you and the technology, and no companies in between. And, yeah. Well, it no. would be interesting if there was like a, a social network that was outside of the, you know, corporate evil empire. Well, that's supposed to, they're going to make Web3 native social networks. But I think yeah. right now everything still relies on Discord and Twitter. Yeah. That's what I keep waiting for. And I'm like, <clears throat> you know, where is this decentralized but I don't know, Web3 man. Web3 identity. Because like, really I want to own my decentralized identity. You know, and how do you data. deal with spam and with the trolling and. Uh, well, like one of the big opportunities with Web3 is that you own your own identity, right? And um, in theory, you could like have con- like a like some kind of blockchain contract to sell your data if you wanted mm-hmm. to sell it to advertisers, you but earn it, revenue. Email is decentralized as well. Yeah, that's a that's a good example. But then I I think I used I ran my own email s- uh, software on my server for the longest time, but it's very hard to do spam filtering on your own and also, if you're not on Gmail, sometimes your emails don't arrive. Or you know what it reminds me of is IRC chat. You know, clients. Uh, yeah. Did you ever use Adium or any of those like IRC clients? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was kind of a golden era. Yeah, <laughs> but it was also like kind of weird because there were a lot of protocol. Like you had. To, I mean, it's actually very similar to like entering 
MetaMask like hashes and stuff like yeah, that, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. or or wallet hashes. There's still all kinds of uh, more less corporate chat programs that people use, but then everyone's on a different one, and then it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have found I have found people a lot of people using Discord in the last couple of years. That yeah. In, but Discord's but still like commercial chat centralized. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just uh, another originally. Slack. Yeah. It was actually originally supposed to be a video game, I think, and then they're like, "We're going to pivot the video game into the <laughs> messaging part of the video game into a chat yeah, app." For video it's almost games. Tetris, but it's a chat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Similar to Slack. Slack started as a video game as well. So, what's your favorite communication protocol thing? In general. Yeah. What's the one you love using? Well, you know, it's funny. I was I mentioned to some folks over dinner that um, we are still we do this podcast and we use Skype. And they're like, what? <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> like, no one uses Skype. Go wash your, your mouth, young and man. And I was like, well, I, I, it, it's the only one that works for us, like, one-to-one. They're like, why don't you use WhatsApp or something like that? And I was like, I don't, I don't know. This is Well, this I is think we tried, we tried FaceTime audio, and then there was a conflict with the mic somehow. That QuickTime and FaceTime couldn't use the same mic at the same time. And it might have been a glitch, but... I mean, we I, could use Zoom, I guess. Right? But I hear... <clears throat> Some other podcasts that I listen to, even the like Apple Rumor podcasts, and they all use Skype for some reason. Yeah, Strangely yeah, I don't know what it reliable. is. It's a strange thing. It's like a they should like pivot Skype into just a podcast recording. I app. once did a podcast with a common friend, Yancy Yancy Strickler of, of Kickstarter fame, founder of Kickstarter. Yeah, yeah, and he did a podcast, and he used some kind of web uh, podcast application where it would record locally through. A Chrome plugin, and then upload that. But yeah, we, we both I, think we tried something like that early on. I feel like, or maybe not, or maybe I we don't think about we it. really, really tried it. But it's it's that thing where it, this just works, and you know, yeah, it works. this is like us with like a tape recorder. You know, one of those big ones you had when you were a kid. We're pressing the orange button and the black button at the same time. The ones they the... used to, for the Watergate scandal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> just reliable, like it's a workhorse. It's a, yeah, you know, just it just does its job. Anyway, no, but but do you feel like um, the COVID thing? Had you not known it, uh, before, would it would you have believed that it was a weird flu or? Um, no, it's it doesn't feel the same. It's like I mean, maybe I guess so. Like it it just really lingers uh, in mm. a weird way. So. Yeah. Yeah, if it was I, like I'm, three days or something. But I was paranoid because I was like, "Can I smell? I can't smell anything." And my and then Kristen's like, "Your nose is clogged. <laughs> like I can't taste. Yeah. What's going on?" And so Kristen's like, symptoms yeah. were milder. Yeah, yeah, they're milder. She's yeah. a little bit. She's still actually a little bit sick though, so she's trailing me. Mm. Um, but anyway, um, I did cancel I mean, a workshop. Yeah, and uh, sorry. If, no, no, like a friend of mine uh, is in Berlin right now. He had to stay three weeks longer because. He was tested positive, and well, he hardly had symptoms. Scenario. But yeah. it does make travel really complicated now because you have to prove a negative test, and sometimes you have a false positive, and then it it can stay in your blood for eight weeks, even though you're perfectly fine. And yeah, yeah, exactly. And like I said, all kinds of people, even with mild symptoms, um, get long term COVID uh, kind of symptoms, yeah. like the brain fog thing. Yeah, it's super scary. Anyway, um, but I did want to talk about workshops because we both did workshops. Yeah. What was your workshop about? So you were at TCU? 
Yeah, so it, it's a university in Fort Worth, and they have an art department and a business department, and they were able to fund my trip and all that stuff because I spoke at both both uh, departments. So I, I spoke at the art department and at the business department because of NFT and the blockchain and all this stuff. Mm, so business. Yeah, and I enjoyed it. I was a little nervous talking to business students, but it was quite fun. And then we did Q&A. We didn't really do workshops, but I can talk about other workshops in the past. But this thing in Fort Worth, um, it was, I love doing talks in general. And uh, studio visits are okay. It's not my favorite thing, but it, they were actually really good students. That I like the work, so that was good. But There's something uh, weird when you do studio visits and you don't really connect with the person's work, and that, that, that can be kind of hard. But yeah, I guess so. But anyway, the, the the my point was that I love doing talks, but I hadn't done any in-person talks for the last three years, maybe. So it was the first time speaking in person. So that was really exciting. But then I'm really not used to like being on campus all day and just talking, talking with the teachers, having lunch with people, and just. Talking for 12, 14 hours a day, that's like, I was like, wow, this is really draining. And, and I really, I I always forget the luxury of my position of, of doing whatever I want. And like, when you just have to talk all day and be in meetings and, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, like, that's... Uh all I do like tomorrow yeah. I, I will I'll start at nine and I will, I'll go till five um in 30 minute blocks talking to people and I actually like have no problem with it anymore like it's totally natural and normal and what you do is you establish kind of a rhythm and you look forward to certain conversations more than others of course but If you it's a, if you stop that it gets hard like the the less yeah. you do it the harder it is so is it is it for you that I don't know how it is with your current job, but your previous job, you had this built-in uh, artist time. You said, I need six weeks of the year for travel and art time sure. or something like that. Yeah. Is it yeah. now that you're so used to talking all the time that when you take those weeks of art production that it's kind of strange and you feel, what mm. am I doing? No, I just do art production all the time now. So I actually scatter in art production conversations During Zoom, throughout the you're week. Rendering? Yeah, so like I use the same calendaring for my art practice as for business. And then I, so I just run all seven days, like uh, meeting days basically. Yeah. And then of course there are work days. Like I have no meeting Wednesdays and then I rarely meet on Sundays uh, outside of maybe doing this podcast. So I've been rendering in the background while okay. we've been chatting right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. But did you also do a workshop while you were down there? Did you? No, I, I can tell a story about another workshop, but I, I have a confession oh, to you, make. Why did you say the, workshop then? I don't know. Did I say workshop? Yeah, you said workshop. That's I think I said workshop because I was doing studio visits and meeting with students, and I thought that's such a complicated way of saying it, so I just said workshop. Uh, but yeah. in, in a way, that is what a workshop is. It's just meeting with people and helping them through. I mean, usually, though, it's not. Usually, it's like forced pedagogy, like learn this thing. <laughs> that's well, kind of what I wanted to talk about, which is it's kind of a weird premise, the, the premise of a workshop. Yeah, but I think uh, I think for me, I don't know, I'm just not a teacher. I, I'm really not a natural teacher. And one of the things that 
makes it difficult for me to teach is that I don't know how to make my own work. So I work with a programmer. So it's not like mm. I can do a workshop and say like, hey, this is JavaScript. It's cool. How, this is how you do it. Yeah, but that's like a technical workshop. And yeah. it, like I think the term more broadly, because like, I just tried to do a workshop where there was a technical component and then there was a discussion component. Um, and then I was, during the discussion component, I was like, mm, this is Zoom and there's not as much discussion so it, we ended up being facilitated discussion, which we had designed. So we had like invited people that were going to talk. And then I was like, it's actually a panel. <laughs> mm. And I was like, I was trying to figure out like, what is a workshop if you're, if it's not technical, actually. And I've been, you know, if you've ever done like um, a masterclass workshop, it's almost always technical in some ways. But when you think about being an artist, so much of being artist is not technical to your point. Like, well, yeah. and Raphael should be able to teach a workshop, like a workshop on no. how well, Raphael thinks. This is maybe. the whole thing. Like, I think since this podcast became questions from the audience, yeah. whenever there's a question, how do I become a full-time artist? How do I become a better artist? How do I find a gallery? All those questions. Yeah. I genuinely don't have an answer. And you kind of do. You do have experience. Yeah, and and the thing, the confession I wanted to make, I always had this mantra that I only work one hour a day, but lately I'm, I'm really working a lot. And I think if you really want to get there, I'm afraid it's still just hard work. And I think with NFT, that a lot of the students, both the art students and the business students, they think, oh, if I know how to mint an NFT, that's step one. Once I figure out how to mint it and make a wallet, then you make a million. That was yeah. the impression. It's like, oh, w- follow these five steps, and then you have well, post on Twitter true. between yeah. eleven and noon, and uh, use these hashtags, and you'll definitely make a million. And yeah, yeah. I mean, based on my own uh, personal experience, that's uh, well. You posted nowhere. you posted thirty minutes after noon, so if you'd posted between eleven and noon, you would have had a million. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, yeah, yeah. that's no, what no, I mean I, with the workshop. Yeah. It's it's so insane with to go in with these expectations and yeah. Um, I have to say, like, oh, how did you how did you make money doing NFTs? Well, I did internet art for twenty years, slowly building a body of work, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, like, it's just. Um, in like there are some things because I'm just thinking right now I'm like doing um, some workshops one on one with an artist, and so, you know they're they're coming from a little bit of an outsider position, like less of an art school position, and there's some things that you pick up along the way that are obvious to you that aren't obvious to everyone, and so you know stuff like um, you know how do you get someone to write about your work? Well, like. First, you have to have work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it has to be about something interesting, and then it has, and then you have to know someone that's a writer, you know, maybe, or you need to know someone that knows someone, and you need to approach them, and you do it in this way, and you need to have a, a gallery partner probably in order to do that. Like there are some, you know, kind of standard ways of doing things. Well, so I, it, it, I don't yeah. even know if all that is true. Like I, I really. Well, of course, you can go any way you want, but yeah. But but maybe what I mean is what um, with 
first of all, art teaching shouldn't be about success, but about art itself. But then art is so subjective that then... But that's not even about success. It's just about, yeah. like, how do you set yourself up for opportunities, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. for example, but, writing a grant. It, there is no, actually no, 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 but even that, like writing a grant, all this... But yeah. the art making itself, that's, I think, the big mystery when you think about yeah. how can you teach art, because it's so subjective. I've been thinking it's about al- that a lot recently. It's almost but, like, yeah. how, how do you... Just be yourself. Like, well... It's, it's that, like, but it's also it's like, like, oh, how do I find a, uh, an interesting uh, partner and fall in love? And they're like, oh, just be yourself. <laughs> I guess so. But if you think about it, um, being open to critique or being critical yourself, right? Like there are things you've picked up that you're probably ignoring. Like I, I was teaching my my team at work how to do critique, right? And it's not actually not very complicated. Yeah, I don't right believe yet. in critiques. I think uh, it's the biggest lie. Well, like the the way like critique can become useful in a design context is, first of all, it's not very useful most of the time if people are just spouting opinions. And I, and I think that's part of what you're describing as like mm-hmm. not useful. However, if you like in design, you should be capable of saying this is the goal. This is what we are trying to achieve. Yeah, but design is, I understand why you can teach design. I'm talking specifically about art. Because, about art critique. But yeah. it's interesting because in art critique, like, it's way harsher than design critique because it's like, I always joke like, you know, design critique, at least they don't attack your, you know, identity, right? Like, um, but in art critique, your identity is kind of wrapped up in the work. And so it ends up being like, you know, your personal reputation is on the line (laughs) as well. Um, Yeah, but to me, the best example is that I had um, my first year. We would just had all these painting classes, so it's it's pretty free form. Yeah. And I remember some of the lessons are formal, so the teacher, you, it was a very precise class. Like we had to get a roller not, instead of a brush, and then we had oil paint and just use that kind of rough texture and just go crazy, completely abstract, just smears, almost like abstract expressionism, and then you just hang all the everybody's work on the wall everybody has big sheets of paper with oil paint and you hang them up those are kind of messy Mm -hmm. and then the teacher just starts going like oh yeah something's happening here this is there's an interesting tension Mm, this one doesn't and it's just so vague and personal and i remember he would always go to my work and he said yeah you have a good sense of color but your compositions are too predictable and it's like, what does that even mean? <laughs> what the fuck? And so I wasn't even partaking in the critique because I thought it was all too subjective. It didn't make any sense. And then I remember the teacher taking me aside. He's like, you've been very quiet during the group critiques. And I'm like, yeah, I just don't relate to the, the assignment. I don't relate to the other students. He's like, okay. And he, he respected my, my directness. And then he said, so what kind of work do you like? And I was like, well, I love Warhol and Dali. And he's like, well, I can accept Warhol, but Dali, no, that, that, <laughs> that's, too, that's too much. I cannot accept that as a, as a uh, point of discourse. And I was just like, if you're not into that and I am, what, what's the point of talking? It, it, it doesn't, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that this whole idea of the critique and that someone's voice is worth more than someone else's voice. And I don't know. Well, definitely you have to, you have to like take critique with a a grain of salt. Like, um, you know, it's not like directive feedback, right? If it were, it wouldn't be a very useful critique, right? Like you don't have to do it. A person says you can take it or leave it. Right. I'm going to rephrase. So I'm going to take the other position. 
So I think critique is useful when you find people that you that are somehow your your comrades that somehow are uh, on the same journey, and then it starts to get useful. Mm, but you have to trust each other. So to me, it's a bit it's a lot like friendship critique. Right. So and I, I in my experience, the best critique is not so much about discarding things, but more pointing out the things you're excited about. No, so I like what you're saying. I That's have so had a lot of friends who are like, they look at all your work and they're like, oh, this one particular work stands out. And then you ask them why. And, and maybe you'll get more confidence or you get positive feedback. And I'm not saying all feedback should be positive, but I think you have to relate to each other to be able to speak the language. Yeah. Like, it, it, here's an example. My, my dad is an art teacher, uh, has been for 40 years. He retired. And he said there was a lot of people coming from small towns in the Netherlands and they would be in high school and be really good at, uh, let's say, gothic airbrush, like H.R. Geiger. Mm -hmm. You know, and that stuff is pretty hard to do and they would be good at it. And then all the other teachers would say, oh, that's kitsch. And just immediately go like, no, that's bad, that's wrong, that's not, the, uh, that's not what we teach here. You should paint like uh, uh, Picasso. And it's just... Once you start that realm of discussion with an, it's it just kills all the joy, and you try to conform everybody to what the teacher thinks, and I, I think it's very damaging. Yeah, I mean, um, I think what you said earlier though about if you have a shared purpose or you're from like kind of a common yeah. common garden, if you will, like, like a yeah. Constance uh, app, but like if you're from yeah. the kind of same sphere, it can it can help. Because there's nuance, obviously. However, every once in a while, someone will come along with a radically different point of view of your than yours, and it, it, I do, I, like I do, ascribe to the the I, the concept that like that can rattle you in a way that gets you to reconsider, you know, stuff that you might have taken for granted, and it can be useful as well. Um, you know, this in design, this is like a big theme because. And, and again, you can we can distinguish between art and design being different, but you know, designers quite often there was like a monoculture in design, right? Of like white men, right? And so like, oh, I hate you know, white men. Fuck that. No, but like a good example would be like automotive design, right? Like design cars were designed by men for like, okay, for yeah. for decades and decades. And like, there, you know, one example there was a woman named Laura Thacker, Thackeray, and she was like, she had invented a seatbelt. Um, that was like less harmful to pregnant women's children because like there were so many infant deaths, mm. like a yeah, pregnant yeah, yeah. pregnant you know women who got in car accidents, and she she shopped this new seatbelt around and like none of the car manufacturers were interested, um, and she just like and she's like but don't you want to save women's lives and they're like yeah take it to the next guy or whatever right, she arrived at, finally at Volvo, and Volvo is famous for having like a more women on the team than than any other car company for they have for a long time um they, like they invented the little hole in the back of um your headrest for ponytails oh, okay um, that's I like a, that. a volvo invention yeah but you know so they saw this and they're like yeah of course we got to pick this up and so they put it in their cars and of course like you know infant more you know deaths went way down and then the rest of the industry is like whoa we better pick that up it's you know volvo yeah. did it right well, they've always had that safety in their brand yeah but even to your point i guess like it took um people of a common yeah, that's a good to, to identify you yeah. know and so in design now like people kind of seek out 
alternative points of view, just because for so many years, bad product design was the result of like non-diverse teams. But yeah, um, but I, I, I completely understand design education. I, I think you can disregard personal preference, but you can say what, what's the goal and, uh, uh, you know, a record cover has a different goal than a tax form, and uh, you can discuss that, and mm-hmm. that all makes a lot of sense. But when when you get to like someone doing, uh, let's say, Marxist theory, social practice, and and someone else doing, <laughs> you're always referring to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then and then someone else doing, uh, I don't know, NFT PFP project. It's hard to talk to each other. Mm. Yeah, no, yeah. it is. It can be very difficult. And that, like, I actually encountered this on on numerous occasions and, like, started to narrow the types of people that I was willing to work with. Like, they have to, for me to work with them successfully, a social practice. Um, because if they're, like, yeah. you're the exception, yeah. actually. Like, But if I was going to collaborate with you, we would disagree so much of the time <laughs> <laughs> that, like, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't create actually an aesthetic so, result or a, a conceptually interesting let's, result. Let's do yeah. a little, a little bit of critiquing or, or questioning of your work. No. The, the, the <laughs> NFTs that you've made on Foundation, do you consider those part of your social practice or is that you just playing by yourself? It's still social practice because, like, the series is, like, um, critical of the context. It's like, um, it's still, it's still like within the, it's within, the, it's like, it's on the further reaches for sure. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there are, there, everything is a universe, like a galaxy. And there's like, you know, the outer reaches of your solar system. And then there's like home. Yeah. So it's yeah, a little yeah. bit further out there, but it's still within the okay the same galaxy. Yeah. I'm working on one right now, actually. And it's like definitely more social. Um it's for like a platform that's um, aligned with the British Museum, and and so it's like me with all of these like artifacts from the British Museum, like the Rosetta Stone and like Caesar and the Elgin marbles. Is this confidential, or does the platform already exist? Uh, no, it's not. It's not confidential. I don't. Even, I don't know how it's going to go forward. But it's with La Collection, which is like. Um, it's another weird one, but I was invited by a gallery in in London. Yeah. Um, Anacultus, I think. Um, and I mean, I know. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but I, like, I know that you're really selective about what you do. And I'm like, I'm pretty much, I have a just say yes. So like, if there's an excuse to make something, I'll make it. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. I need that. I don't yeah. think, I think you're better at planning it out. But if I don't have like a forced You're deadline, like a starting point. Yeah. Yeah. Then I, then I don't get going. And so I, because ha- I, have you ever heard of the analogy of rocks, pebbles, and sand? Have you ever heard of this? No. It's kind of like a philosophy thing, but they apply it in business and actually in roadmap plan- planning a lot. But basically, you go, you know, kind of it, 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 the the like kind of um, story goes like a teacher is talking to their students and like, okay, like how much do you think you could fit into this uh, this jar? Right. Oh so, yeah, I, I remember it now. Yeah. So he, you know, like, and he's like, you've got these rocks, these pebbles, and the sand, and. You know, the students try it in various ways or whatever, but he shows them, they're like, there's no way we can fit all this in. And then he's like, no, you're doing it. You know, if you, they, they, like, they start by putting the sand in first and the pebbles and the rocks and it overflows. And he's like, now do it like this. So first he puts in the rocks and, you know, they fill the whole container, right? And he's like, but look, there's all this space between the rocks. So he like 
you know, pours in the pebbles and those fill in. They're like, oh, it's full for sure now. But then there's still space between the pebbles. So he pours in the sand. He's able to fit everything in. But for me, like, it, it works a lot like that. Like, I have a busy, busy week, you know, full of rocks. You know, there's some big projects going, even in art, right? And then you're always like, oh, I don't have time for anything else. But you kind of do. You have, to, you have room for, like, a few little pebbles, right? And then... Even once you've done that, you still have room. Like you could not watch TV, and like, and that allows you to pour some sand in. Or you, you know, you, maybe you want to get a walk in because you need to exercise. Well, you know, you can get that on your way to the grocery store. Store of the meeting. Anyway, what am I saying? Um, like, I always find that like for me to do something, I can find a way to fit it in as rocks, pebbles, or sand. But I need to actually have the force. I have to be forced to do it. Right. And Otherwise, why do you think that is? I think it's a factor of like like my own human psychology, like what I think, when I think I'm full, I'm actually not, you know? Um, and my, my brothers and sisters actually are always worried about me. And I don't know if you got this from your family. They're always like, you're so busy. You're going to work yourself to death. And then I'm like, well, actually like, I, I don't, you know, if I stop watching TV, I'm not working myself to death and I get great joy. I was talking to a computer programmer actually this week. But and what, are, like, what are the, the symptoms that you're showing that they're worried They'll be like I'll be like working on the weekend, right? Like I'll be working on. Art but it's or it's not right? like um, you have a nervous tick or you have uh, no. stomach problems or it, no, th- th- you're not sleeping well or symptoms. No, like I sleep that. fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, if I don't work, I have trouble sleeping. I get anxious. Right? Like, but um, you know, I was talking to a computer programmer and he was suffering from the same thing where his like family would get mad at him for, and his friends were like, "Why would you work on computer programming like after?" Th- Five after your work day. It's more fun than watching TV. Well, and he was just like, because I really enjoy it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like it's like people yeah, can't it's, understand. Yeah, it's a trade off. But then if if you see someone who's working a lot, having fun, but also looks really tired, needs yeah, uh, yeah. medication to go to sleep, or it is is um, talking about suicide or whatever, you know, there are signals. Yeah, that's why my rocks, pebbles, and sand thing is like, you know, a horrible thing to, <laughs> to coach somebody's burnt out on. Yeah. Uh, but if you if those rocks you, you would be are the, the, thing... the teacher who's like, while you're doing your lunch, you could also uh, invest in crypto. Well, the, the rule of the rocks is the rocks are supposed to be the things that are most important to you. Like if you follow the, like it's originally, I think, like a, a proverb, like a philosophical, like a philosophical, philosophical proverb. Um, I can't remember where it's from. Um, I don't want to assume, but, uh, you know, if you really focus on those four or five big things that really matter to you, you can fit all of the nonsense in. like doing your taxes is a good example. Like, you know, you in theory don't have time to do your taxes, but people get it done, you know, because they have to, and because they're focused on good things, they can fit in that kind of negative tax thing once a year. Right. Yeah. Or get your car, you know, filled up or washed or like fix your bike or get new shoes. Like there's all kinds of things that you can. I, I you know. don't know how I just did a thing on Casey Reese's platform. He has a new platform. Well, he, a feral file. Oh, Casey. Yeah. Casey Reese. Yeah. Sorry. I was thinking Casey Neistat for a second. I was but like, no. no. Yeah. And I don't know how he does processing and the yeah. feral file platform and be, I don't know, the head of the new media department at, at UCLA at yeah. UCLA and make his own work. How does he, I'm, I, I already feel busy and I have none of those obligations. So it's crazy. And he yeah. has two kids and yeah. Yeah. So I always get the same thing too. And it's what I'm trying to describe, but I'm doing a really p- 
poor job of it. Well, you, it, I mean, you made a choice not to have a country house and kids and uh, that, that kind of stuff. So and kids you definitely, yeah, frees up a lot of time. So I don't even think you probably don't work as much as you're led to believe because some people have like a classic car collection and a family and grandkids and you know. Yeah, I always finish the workday at five, and then I do whatever I want after that. But I, you know, I think the main thing—I <laughs> do is, whatever uh, I want after that, which happens <laughs> to be working. I finish work at five, but then I get to work. <laughs> but I've always found that it's like on autopilot. Like I don't even think about it, right? And they talk about routine. You know, you yeah, the, that's the powerful. big part of routine is like yeah. doing the least amount possible to get started, right? But if it's autopilot, like you, it's literally you don't have to do anything; it just comes to you constantly. And that's what I think I was trying to get at with like, I need deadlines or a reason. Like I need it to come to me. I can't chase after it. Like I'm not very good. And that's why I've always just said yes to things. Um, I wonder if that's a confidence issue. I don't know. That's a good question. It, it, like, I, I I don't know this for sure. That's maybe for a psychologist to answer, but uh, I guess different artists work different ways. And I'm sure there's plenty of very successful artists that just, got successful by having a lot of deadlines. So not everybody's Yeah, I wonder if like Picasso had like a bunch of deadlines. He's like, no, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Duchamp's like, I got to get more of these toilets done. Yeah. Um, yeah, got to crank I up. know Warhol, I was, the Warhol diaries are like on uh, Netflix right now. There's like a little documentary about yeah. them. What did you think? Uh, uh, I haven't finished watching it. Did you watch the whole thing yet? I watched a bit and there was a weird sound glitch that I thought there was something wrong with my TV and then I stopped watching it. And they like used AI, but they didn't use yeah. AI in some way to like record I, I, his voice. Yeah, I saw half an hour and I was not into it. This whole idea of of discovering the true Warhol, to me, the true Warhol is the performance, not like figuring yeah. out that behind closed doors he was actually a regular Joe. Like, But of course, like unparalleled it, productivity. It, it, right? it, it's, yeah, but, but it's funny. It's like, if there's one guy who made his whole work was about creating a persona and then they're like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to dismantle his persona. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah, we're going to dissect it. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, like just to bring it back to maybe back to critique and workshops, like critique is a forcing function. Like having something ready for critique was always like a way to bring, you know, it was an automated system. Like, and I found this also with my designers at work. Like, if it's voluntary, like you can opt into it and it's scheduled ad hoc, it doesn't work nearly as well as if it's always on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. and there's a you know pre assigned schedule with the opportunity for others to join in. Yeah. Um, and I find that this is like going to the gym or anything else. Like, you need these certain habits in yeah. play. And at workshops, I found when I meet people who attend my workshops or I go to workshops seem to fall into a similar category of like, it's like paying for a gym membership. Like if I go to this workshop, then I'll start this new project because yeah. it'll inspire me. I'll have some technical knowledge to get going. Well, I, I want to give you an example of a workshop that didn't go well. Yeah, go for uh, it. So it? I was invited in Brazil to do a workshop and it was targeted at the creative industry. So it was people, video editors or advertising or whatever. And, People who were kind of stuck creatively who then work with an artist for a week to kind of get out of their comfort zone. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, well, I, I want them like, oh, I can't code myself, so I can't really teach you how to make a website, but okay. And then I get there and everybody's there and, you know, they're a little bit more on the, not completely f free in their jobs, so they're not used to free assignments. And I gave them an assignment. I said, 
make something of which you can't explain why it is the way it is. And they just all stared at me. <laughs> and they were so scared. They're like, but what do you mean? What's the assi- But what am I supposed to do? And I'm like, yeah, make something of which you cannot explain why it is the way it is. And they just, they got so scared I had to come up with another assignment. They just got completely stuck. And I think I'm just so used to being in the in the free zone. And then for them, it was mm. just a bit too far. Yeah. And that's what I mean with the teaching. Like, I, and and all the questions at the, the university and often the questions on the, it's just when someone asks me, oh, but but how do you work with color or how do you do it? And I really don't know. Yeah, but you play like one of the. I I do a workshop on design thinking, like a like a classic crash course. It's a very popular format. That it's kind of cheesy. Like you can go into any group of people. It's classically you know enter a room full of suits, and you're like you know you put a bunch of pipe cleaners out on the table and. <laughs> And you're like, okay, we're going to design a product together, right? Um, but one of the techniques is to like limit the amount of time they have available to come up with ideas and to force them to generate a lot of bad ideas without using words, like with just stick figures and stuff uh, very quickly, and then to iterate that. But like, in, like, have you ever heard of this uh, game that designers play called, it's not even a game, it's actually a tool, it's called Crazy Eights. No, it it's like you you fold a piece of paper into eight, and then you get eight boxes oh, yeah, from yeah, the yeah, folds, yeah, yeah. and then you have eight minutes to fill it in with eight ideas. And um, typically, like you know, if I force people to get to eight ideas, their later ideas are way better than their first I ones, see. right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then they always want to use words, which slows them down like crazy, right? Words use a different part of the brain, and so if you get them to draw images, they go way faster, right? Like, because they can think in abstract concepts then. But all of these things are not the way these people are traditionally taught to think, you know? And so... It it almost sounds like you're uh, reversing their education. And that's the whole thing where children are always incredible artists and then they start to learn rules how to make images and they become more predictable and boring. But ev- everyone at four years old is incredibly creative. And then yeah. the world just starts hammering down on, on you and just saying, do this, do that, do this, do that. And before you know it, you've lost all your ideas. Well, I've run that workshop like probably a dozen or tw- maybe even more than 20 times now. And I've never, it's never been dull. Like, And people have always generated interesting ideas. And I'm like, why can't you do this during your regular day, right? But like, I think you're right. Like, there's so many constraints that yeah. are put in to protect us from looking stupid in front of each other. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. That when and, you ask and, people to think that way, that you know. And the thing I learned that, that this week teaching in Texas or in, in being part of the also the business department is that the business world is slowly realizing that the old ways don't work. Yeah. And the 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 top companies. They've, everything has shifted and, and like tech is eating the rest. And the rest of the companies are like, well, how do we adapt? And it's really adapt or die. Mm-hmm. And so it is this era. And, and someone was saying we're going through 100 years of change in 10 years. But I'm not sure who said it. But, yeah, I, I do think that it, it's maybe it sounds corny, but that you really need this uh, out-of-the-box thinking. Well, it would be ironic if like AI ended up being more creative than people, like which is like literally, I think, a risk <laughs> in some ways, right? Where we're mm-hmm. we're leaning on 
um, you know, and a lot of creative tools now will do like, they'll generate ideas for you to get you started, right? They'll do like, here's five ideas to get you going, right? Like five mm. ways. Have, like, you, have you tried generous. that with, with AI? Uh, no, but I've talked to architects who use it quite frequently, right? Like they'll, you can use like a generative pattern to kind mm. of, and it'll do like five permutations. And I get it because that's very complex. It would be hard to sketch that with pen and paper. So it, it creates creative opportunity that you wouldn't otherwise be. Yeah. It augments your own ability. There, there was that thing with AI filters that then if everybody starts using them, you recognize it and it kind of becomes a common style. And then. Yeah. 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 yeah but like now the um, like GP, GP3 or GPT3, that um, that AI that can like write poetry and stuff. It's getting like, you know, relatively sophisticated. I don't know if you've. You've tried it or looked I at like it. I like pronouncing it Jippity 3. <laughs> but I feel like it could probably do your haikus. Like if you put all your haikus in, it could mm. probably do like a convincing haiku. It, yeah. But, you know, I guess the, the argument would be that it's like, um, it's not able to surprise. But I think they're, you know, they're playing with that. Humor seems like the outer reaches of like the impossible because mm. like... You know what's funny yeah. I bet I bet you could teach uh, if you if you put in all the SolidWit instructions, the AI could come up with a few more. Yeah. Well, I mean, anyway, I, I'm overhyping. You know what is like pretty modest technology. I've worked in accounting software my entire career, and they've always said that like accountants would be the first ones to be automated. That they said that ten years ago, and like <laughs> there are more accountants than ever. Yeah, there's so, a shortage, right? Yeah, exactly. There's <laughs> a shortage of accounts. Yeah. No, that's, I got that's a new the account. crazy thing. I kept waiting for automation to be so efficient and amazing that everyone in the world can be an artist. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. But I think that it's not automation. The, the automation part is automatic, it like, feels automatic like all the, thinking. We're really wandering off, but it feels like all the automation actually made people no, less not. efficient and more busy. Like, uh, like we're not wandering off because critique well, and workshop. Maybe, is maybe what I'm trying to say is that it seems that automation is like throwing jet fuel into an engine, but the engine is just uh, working too hard. Like the engine wasn't built for it yet, and the automation just is is overheating the engine. Yeah, but my argument is simply like that: critique and workshops are parts of a program that you know facilitate or necessitate like your input and therefore they generate outcomes. Right. Like, and I used to really, I, I just want to like share this thing. Like I used to um, do lots of technical workshops. Then one day I was like, this is garbage because you only have like two, three, if you're, you know, three hours, if you're lucky with folks and you're trying to teach them maybe like, you know, years worth of content and then, you know, and you and you feel like no one ever goes on and, and continues to work in that way. Right. Like they, because you're teaching them also through your eyes, like a very specific way of yeah. doing things. Yeah. And I would get really depressed. And I was like, I'm not going to do this anymore. In fact, I'm only going to do like the design thinking type workshops. And yeah, I was you like, don't want to only... force your method. Yeah, because like the technical was so specific. I was like, this is unfair. And it's, I don't think it's it's useful Unless you're like them. a motivational coach. And like, it doesn't even matter. <laughs> but you're just, yeah, just but, keep going. Great. Yeah. But recently I've taken up doing a bit of hybrid. And so I'll do workshops like this workshop I did on Saturday. And then I invite people to continue working with me one-on-one. And I know you're going to hate this because you're like, Jeremy, why would you sign yourself up for that? But because like if one or two people do take me up on the offer, which actually has been happening quite a bit, 
I learn something because they come to me with like a challenge, like, could we do this together? And I'm like, hmm, I don't know, like that would stretch my craft. And then they also get something out of it, which is like, we have to work hands on one on one in more collaborative ways. And I think that that like a workshop where it's like one person in front of 30 is pretty useless. But like working one on one with someone, same thing goes for critique, by the way, like you did studio visits. Yeah, I think that studio visits, I have a few in my career that were extremely valuable. Yeah, yeah but because yeah. the relationship continued, not because of the first meeting. Okay. It was because it like was with a curator and we ended up meeting for the next five years and continuing the conversation. So and have, where am have I you going ever been part of uh, business workshops that were targeted at teaching you where you weren't the teacher? Yeah, yeah, I've been to tons. Um, Have you been to really cringy Tony Robbins style conferences or things like that? Yeah, yeah, there's hor- oh, I've been to terrible stuff. Like, <laughs> but I've also had a few good ones too. Can you tell? Are there any funny stories? Um, I remember I went to one in Germany, and it was like a really businessy, like you know, plumbers like United was there, stuff like that. It was like, and they had like a magician up on stage doing like you know, everyone blow a balloon and then write something on the balloon that's like a hope or a dream and then release it. And <laughs> like, I mean, it was hard for me to to, to stomach it. That Dick said, Brent like, style. yeah, yeah um, like everyone seemed to, and it was really hard because like they enjoyed that more than my performance. <laughs> like, mm. It's like, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, they're never that bad. I think we... Um, There's not very much Tony Robbins stuff. Plus, Tony Robbins is a genius. Have you ever seen him perform? He's, like, incredible. I would love to go to a Tony Robbins show. Have you done uh, sort of... Have you used your character as a motivational speaker in workshops? Um, Like, kind of, yeah. Yeah, I've done, like... um, Because I started doing business workshops for artists, and then, like, I would would come in and out of character while I was doing that. But... um, so I've kind of done that. It, it can be fun in terms of like people get really pumped up because the character is so positive. Um, and for a while, I could yeah. have had a hard time like controlling it. And then but. maybe a topic that's slightly controversial, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of teachers who don't teach because they love it, but because they have to. Ooh, are there? I don't know. <laughs> of course there are. <laughs> and I've spoken to teachers like I remember being part of a group show and these two artists were teaching I think in Detroit and they were getting a bit drunk at the dinner and they said oh I hate teaching so much I hate all my students please well, I they're don't so know lucky to... to have a job I know I know but they were talking to me he's like I just want to be a full-time artist I can't take it anymore and then then you know that might be your teacher and and uh, they might feel that way maybe only temporarily but yeah, that yeah. really stings. Like I was on, I gave a reference call for a friend who was trying to get a teaching job this week, and I broke down into tears in on the call. Yes, <laughs> maybe not the best thing to do a reference call, but I, <laughs> I, I've been on a few of these calls for this person, and I know that they want the teaching job so badly, and it's so hard, it's so competitive to get these like these tenure track because it's a jobs. lot of ex- economic security. Yeah, and to have one and not not really fully take advantage. That's what I, I mean. Know. Yeah, that, that that whole tenure thing, it's like once you're in after four or five years, you're like, oh, I don't have to do that much anymore. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. 
Well, yeah. anyway, it upset me. <laughs> that upset well, yeah, me but it's you know sometimes it's good. I mean, since, I did. Since I tried we're teaching. Being, yeah. since, we're, since we're talking about the topic of critiquing, like yeah, we can also yeah. critique the profession itself. No doubt, no doubt. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, I guess you know I just wanted to talk about critique and workshops and and working with people to get to a better tomorrow because it's I've just been doing that a lot over yeah. the last few weeks. I, I have to say in, in my experience I was really happy to leave school. I thought I really wanted to go out on my own and I I felt that way maybe after two years of school and it was four years total, but I just started to feel like, oh I I finished the school, I thought it would be good to just have the diploma, but I I kind of felt like the academic environment was a lot of a lot of it was about the context of the school itself. So it's a lot about like, what does my teacher think of the work? And sure. the teacher thinks, what do the other teachers think of me? And I felt like that was, maybe I wasn't in the right school. I don't know. But that, that to me, that people were so focused on the ecosystem itself, that, that to me seemed uh, unproductive or like not, not the right trajectory or mind frame. Yeah, I mean, politics exists outside of schools, too. I mean, yeah. um, pretty hard to avoid in the workplace in general. I've yeah, become, but th th that's a yeah. good point, because everyone I hear, most people love the the core of their job, but they all struggle with the politics at work. Mm -hmm. I yeah, that, I mean... If that, we can we can uh, that's circle another that back podcast. to workshops, but yeah, yeah. yeah. I, well, I think it's another podcast, but like I I have become very apolitical in a new job, right? Like I've I was very political in my old job. I'd been there a long time. I had all this baggage, and I knew every single person and all of their like vendettas. And you know <clears> all the history of previous employees. All the history, yeah. yeah. And then I got a new job, and I'm like, what was I worried about? Like, what is that? That stuff was so stupid. Is like, it also because you're remote? Maybe, yeah. And then, like, there are people that keep coming to me with politics. And I'm like, I'm not interested. I don't want to go back to that place. Like, that well, was an unhealthy place. This is how I feel place. with political art. I'm like, I don't think we should focus on this. I think it's not going to age well. And mm, that could be true. But um, as we know, there are some great political art that has aged incredibly well. Um, Can you give me an example? Yeah. Like, a lot of the 1970s video art. Uh, yeah, work yeah. like I think I I show Joan Jonas's vertical role like at least once a month now. Um, mm. I just think it's like you know it's a brilliantly simple piece. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. that is political because it talks. But not about too how, much about current events or. Oh no! But that's I mean you're talking about didactic political art, like almost yeah. like propaganda in a way. Yeah, and I think illustration is not what I'm the type of political art that either of us okay. is interested in. Yeah. I mean, I obviously I make political art, but in the best cases, hopefully you don't recognize it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But not uh -huh. like, hey, Bill Clinton sucks. Like, <laughs> no, I did try doing stuff like during the Iraq War, and I remember I was at Syracuse, and um, David Ross, who was like the curator at the Whitney at the time, um, came and gave a talk about how it was artist's responsibility. And all the parents, it was their responsibility to ensure that artists were engaged in making political art because, you know, there weren't very many levers to communicate how unjust the Iraq war was. And actually, it's very similar to the situation now. Imagine you lived in Russia and like someone came to give a talk at your university is like, we have to stop this unjust war in Iraq, that, in, in Ukraine rather. That's how it, would, it felt at the time because the Iraq war was not that different. I I tried to make it make sense. Yeah. Critique, workshop, 
Workshop. Forcing yeah. function. Automation. <laughs> Thinking. I don't know. It's all of the themes of the podcast. Out of the box. Down. Last episode was smoothies. This one is salad. Uh, <laughs> and COVID. <laughs> and COVID, yeah. You don't make friends with salad. Um, anyway, yes, don't get COVID. <laughs> don't go yeah. to a workshop in person. Do an online one. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Thanks, All Mark. right. Thank you. Take Bye-bye. care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.